Hey guys, are you staying hydrated? You need to get your hands on the water bottle everyone is talking about, the Hydro Jug. These durable and reusable jugs hold more than a half gallon of water, so you will stay hydrated all day long. The Hydro Jug has helped me with my daily water intake, and I've definitely noticed a difference in my health. Some of my favorite things about the Hydro Jug are the wide mouth opening, which allow me to fill my jug with ice or fruit. I can also track how much water I have drank with the measurement scale, making sure that I hit that half gallon a day. And the best part, the Hydro Jug is dishwasher safe, which means easy cleaning on my end. What more could you ask for in a water bottle? Aside from the convenience and function, which is great, it's also just a cute looking bottle. You guys should see all of the bright and bold colors they have. They're adorable. On top of that, their neoprene accessory sleeves slip right over the bottle to keep your water cold and come in a variety of awesome patterns and colors to mix and match with your bottle. Each sleeve has a matching shoulder strap and two pockets to hold stuff like phones, keys, chapstick, or anything else. Like your AirPods. <laughs> like your AirPods. Like your AirPods. Look, I'm drinking mine right now. Cheers, Andy. Cheers. We can offer 10% off with the code LOVEMURDER. Head to www.thehydrojug.com to customize your jug and get 10% off with our code LOVEMURDER. All right, Jesse, last week's story was so enraging. What's the case this time around? When a beloved member of the community goes missing after having a bizarre phone conversation, the authorities delve deeper into who might have loved her and who perhaps loathed her. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about good friends, jealous lovers, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. And again, I love all of you beautiful people out there. Thank you so much for doing all of your reviews and subscriptions this week. It really makes a difference. Yeah, I can personally contest to the fact that Jesse sends me all of the screenshots of every single time, <laughs> every time we get a five-star review, and she's just elated. She is so happy. Yes, I am. And don't lie, Andrea. You like it too. Come on. No, I like it. I like it. I'm just three hours behind her because being in LA, and so every morning I wake up to the five-star reviews. <laughs> so it's actually a really great way to start my day. That's me. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. All right. So we have a very, very interesting story today. This is um, one of the lesser known cases that I've ever come across. So I think this should be a new to, I know it's new to you, Andy. I think it'll be a new to a lot of our listeners out there. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm really, really excited to present this story to you guys. The book I used for as my main source was Notes on a Killing by Kevin Flynn and Rebecca Lavoie. And they are another one of those amazing husband and wife writer teams, which I just love. And they did such a great job. I'm 100% getting some more books from them because they tell a very compelling story. It's, I like it having two point of views on a story too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, after reading only half of this book, I went back on Thrift Books and ordered like four of their other books. 
<laughs> yeah, I was like, let's do this thing. So let's get into it. When the phone rang at the Animal Inn at 7.30 a.m. one bitterly cold morning in February of 2005 in rural New Hampshire, Sandra Merritt could barely hear it over the cacophony of barking dogs. It was breakfast time for the hungry beasts who had been left at the kennel where their owners enjoyed warm and sunny vacations. Sandy was a single 44-year-old animal lover. It was what had drawn her to the job at the Animal Inn. Now, as she put her life back together after a disastrous love affair that had sorely tested her sobriety, the dogs were a solve to her aching heart. I'm coming, I'm coming, she grumbled to the incessantly ringing phone. Animal in, she answered, putting one hand over her left ear to try to block out the baying dogs. Sandy, this is Penn, a small voice said on the other line. Sandy smiled. Penn had been one of her most fierce supporters over the last few tumultuous months. Despite her tiny stature, Penn was a warrior for her friends and loved ones. But Penn knew better to call at what was Sandy's busiest time of the day. She loved Penn, but she needed to nudge her off the phone politely. But then what she said next caused Sandy's jaw to drop. Sandy, I, I want you to reconsider your relationship with him. What? He was an adulterous, abusive stalker. Penn had fought so hard to save Sandy from him. Why would she be reversing course now? Penn went on. I, I can see how it could have been a mistake. I want you to go to the courthouse and remove the restraining order. Sandy was speechless. You know, he's facing a $2,000 fine. I, I never meant it to go this far. Call him at Jim's house and tell him that you'll testify for him in court and tell the judge that it was a mistake. Sandy was dumbfounded. Penn, she said, are you sure? What do you mean you never meant it to go this far? I'll leave a letter for the court to explain how I pushed you because I was jealous of you and him. Penn sounded strange, flat, and resigned. But then, then again, Sandy was straining to hear her over the howls. What was she missing? I'm sorry I used you to make him hurt. It wasn't personal. Please, Sandy, I knew from the start you two should be together. Let's forget what happened. Uh, super weird. Before Sandy could even respond to that ludicrous statement, Penn continued, I'm leaving town and I'm traveling to Mexico in South America. I never told you of this affair that I had with a pilot. A pilot? What are you talking about? Sandy was thoroughly confused now. She knew Penn's boyfriend, Jonathan, and he was not a pilot. Furthermore, Penn was a very high moral fiber. She would have never had an affair and then just run off with the guy. Penn sounded breathless at this point. He wants me to travel the world with him, but, but Sandy, you know, the two of you should move in together. You should. You can rent my house out because I'll be gone and you can, you know, stay in my house and, and have my garden. Move in together? Sandy had no idea what Penn was talking about. Moving in with that toxic man was the last thing Sandy wanted or needed in her life. And Penn's house and garden were her sanctuary. She wouldn't have just given them up. Sandy, you're truly a friend. I I only want the best for you. Penn's voice wavered and cracked. Know this. Go after him. The way I had you stay away from him. Think of aloneness like a drink and stick to him like glue. The dog's whines were reaching a fever pitch. Between the noise and the utterly mysterious call from her friend, Sandy felt a headache coming on. Penn, she said. This is all a bit much. Why don't we have lunch and talk about this? I can call you sometime between noon and one today. 
keep him happy, keep him out of jail, Pen went on. And then she said not to mention any of this, none of this conversation to her boyfriend, Jonathan, and that she was also leaving her beloved sheepdog, Fluff, with Sandy's ex. Now, that was really disconcerting. Penn had admitted in the past to treating the pooch like another one of her children. Sandy couldn't imagine a world in which she would leave Fluff with this man that she totally despised. Penn hurriedly mentioned something about a chainsaw accident as Sandy struggled to get off the phone. As she finally hung up, she put her hand to her head in confusion. What had that all been about? Sandy made a mental note to call Penn back at lunchtime and went about feeding the hungry dogs. But later, when she tried, Penn wouldn't answer. And then, hours later again, still the machine. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Something is not quite right here. So let's start by talking about our protagonist, the big-hearted Penn Meyer, and then we can see why this conversation is so out of character to who Penn is. Penn is a thin and elegant woman who wove and sold textiles at farmer's markets near her home in Goshen, New Hampshire. Okay, chic. Yes, she is almost universally beloved in this community. And she stood out with her oversized, well-constructed clothing and trademark silver bangles. Okay, so chic. Yeah, I feel like she has very much got your style on lock, Andy. She loves like a well-constructed, well-designed shirt that's just a little too big for her. <laughs> and all of her, <laughs> her special jewelry, all of these beautiful silver bangles actually came from different places in her travels. Okay, love that. Yes, they were all very meaningful to her. Beyond her creative passion for weaving, Penn also loved gardening her cozy home on Lake Gunnison, a.k.a. the Goshen Ocean, helping others and her sweet sheepdog, Fluff, who went absolutely everywhere with her. Penn's full name is Edith Meyer, and she was born into a large old money family in Boston, Massachusetts on July 4th, 1949. Oh, no way. Yeah, her mother actually nicknamed her Penny for Independence Day mm -hmm. because of her birthday, and it eventually got shortened to just Pen. She was one of 11 kids, but her free-spirited nature was at odds with her parents' stifling and patriarchal values. Other than her 13 years younger sister, Jessie, Pen wasn't especially close with her family. After graduating from a ritzy private high school, she earned a liberal arts degree from Colby Sawyer College in 1970, where she met and married Colin Campbell. The couple went on to have three children, Justin, Kira, and Haley. Throughout motherhood, she also pursued multiple social causes like women's rights and environmental preservation. Penn pursued creative endeavors as well, ultimately landing on weaving as both her career and favorite pastime. By 1985, the marriage to Colin had run its course and the two decided to divorce. It was amicable and the ex-couple remained friendly and co-parented well together. Okay, so she's amazing. She's amazing. It just, guys, when you hear about this woman, when I was reading the book, it, first of all, she reminded me a lot of ways of uh, Nathaniel's grandmother, Peg. Okay. So there was like a lot. And also his other grandmother, Nancy, was born on July 4th. So there was that too. And doesn't Nathaniel's mom weave? And Nathaniel's mom weaves. So it was like, in my mind, this is like every woman that's important to my husband who are all incredible. They're just all <laughs> phenomenal women. But she's just a, this wonderful, strong, loving, kind, supportive person. Like, it's kind of the person that we all want to be. We want to be 
sensitive and empathetic and loving, but we also need to be strong to have boundaries that yeah. protect ourselves and other people. And she managed to walk this line. Okay. Yeah. She's like a freaking hero. Penn had a lifelong love of hiking and swimming. And there's also this really cute story in the book about how she basically liked to go out on nighttime walks. And in New Hampshire, obviously, it snows a lot. And so she would go to the houses where the neighbors had kids and she would do snow angels on their lawns. So when they woke up and looked out their windows, they would see that a snow angel had been there. Okay. That's so cute. Yeah. She was super duper beloved in her community. And years later, a neighbor would write a letter to the newspaper remembering Penn as an actual angel who touched her family. She wrote that Penn reminded her that they should all live their lives with dignity and worth and to pass those affirmations along to their children. But this angel also had her demons. Penn had been sexually abused as a child, and the trauma had led her to be a secret drinker. By the mid-1990s, Penn suffered a nervous breakdown that required hospitalization. It was an event that forced her to confront her past and compelled her into Alcoholics Anonymous. Here, Penn found what might become the greatest passion in her life, advocating for women recovering from substance abuse issues and trauma. Over the rest of her life, Penn would become a champion for hundreds of women in need. In 2001, with two out of three children grown and out of the house, Penn remarried a landscaper named Richard Rankin. The marriage was terrible. Richard was jealous, controlling. He drank too much, which is precisely what Penn didn't need in her life. I think it was definitely one of those situations where she got into the relationship to save him and then realized she needed to save herself. For sure. The couple separated within three years, and Penn bought herself her dream house on the Goshen Ocean. The house was described as tranquil, beautiful, homey, and funky, just like Penn herself. In honesty, this story and the way they describe where she lives in the book makes me want to move to New Hampshire because <laughs> they describe this like beautiful house on this lake and she apparently like put in this stone patio that went all the way down to the water and she had all these incredible hiking trails that like intersected her house so you could just go hiking like literally from her yard. <laughs> I was like, this sounds like heaven. Don't move to New Hampshire. That's so much harder for me to get to. <laughs> well, I, we've got a direct train to New York City. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere where you cannot get to me easily. But man, maybe like a little, like a little lake house, like a little cabin, you know? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> in late 2003, Penn met a man named Jonathan Purick at AA and the two hit it off. Penn was still in the process of getting legally separated and divorced from Richard, so she refused at this time to get romantically involved. She okay. did not she did not get messy. Like Penn was way above that. She was like, "You know what? If you like me now, you're still going to like me in a year when I'm actually single." So, let's be friends. So they did that. They became actually very deep platonic friends during that year, and the day that her divorce was finalized on September 15th, 2004, was when he took her out on her first date. Okay. Jonathan had grown up in New Cannon, Connecticut, with an alcoholic father, and he had gone to Vietnam after failing out of college after one semester. Oof. In Vietnam, he was trained as a combat photographer, and he had seen some shit, as you can imagine, in Vietnam. Yeah. So upon his return, he had a lot of issues with his personal life. He got married and divorced four times throughout his 20s. Whoa. Yeah, and he had a hard time holding down a steady job. The root of his issues was almost certainly alcoholism, and he eventually kicked the habit around Christmas 1995 with the help of his sober adult son. 
By the time Jonathan began dating Penn, he had nearly a decade of sobriety under his belt. Jonathan had been given a new lease in life when he became sober, and he paid it forward by devoting his life to helping out fellow addicts. Okay, so they're both doing that. Yes, Penn and John both shared that devotion, not only to AA, but to helping others. So this is why they had a really strong foundation in their relationship. John told the authors, Kevin and Rebecca, a story about how once they had been at a community function to keep developers out of Sunapee, New Hampshire, when Penn spotted a young woman in the crowd who she could tell was an abuse survivor. So Penn's like, I'm going to go up and talk to that woman. I think she used, she just said by like the way the woman's, wow, like body language was. She was like, that woman needs me to go over and like say something affirmational to her. She was like, I need to say, go over and say something that affirms this woman and lifts her up. And so John knew that like it wasn't his place to get involved in the conversation, but he said he like watched Penn go over to this woman and it was like the woman recognized something in Penn or Penn said something that just connected with the woman. And from afar, he could just see that soon like they were holding hands. At some point, both women cried. And at the end of the event, Penn embraced the woman. And they exchanged information, and Penn had been completely right. There had been something that had happened in this woman's past that was really weighing heavy on her, and just this this kind-hearted exchange had just opened something up in the woman. Wow. Yeah, and John said that he looked over, and he looked at this woman who looked so different from the woman who came into the meeting, and he's like, wow, she's been healed. Like, not completely, of course, but because of Penn, she feels better than she did when she came here. Yeah, And he just thought that was such a powerful part of her personality, this desire to help, this awareness of other people who were struggling, and that she had such a gift for improving people's life through her compassion. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, unsurprisingly, he fell madly in love with her. Of you know? course. <laughs> Almost immediately, they connected, and Penn also told him that apparently Penn is a, a term for a female swan. And because swans mate for life, he was like, oh, okay, well, what is the word for male swan? And so they looked it up and it was Cobb. So like they immediately had these like cute nicknames for each other, obviously Pen and Cobb. And so he'd say, you're my Pen," And she'd say, you're my Cobb back. Cute. It was cute. They had this like really like nice love story where they were developing and like, you know, they're at this point older. They're, you know, Penn was in her mid fifties at this point and they both had, you know, been married and divorced a couple times and they had found each other and they talked a lot about like, man, I wish I had just met you when I was in my twenties. She said that to him and he was like, yeah, but I wasn't, I wasn't who I am today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You know, you wouldn't have loved me probably then. Like we actually met at exactly the right time, you know? Yeah. When they were supposed to. Exactly. So yeah, they began to build a life together and it was a really good life, a life based on love and sobriety and service to the community and others. But only a few months into this life-changing relationship on February 23rd, 2005, Jonathan was worried. He couldn't get a hold of Penn, and that wasn't like her. Even more concerning was that Penn had failed to give a ride to an AA friend in need, and that certainly wasn't like her. So Joanne DeFore was another woman that Penn had taken under her wing. So she was another person that they were friends with at AA, and she was a single mother who had left an abusive relationship. Okay. And she, at the time, had no car and was working at McDonald's. 
Okay. And one day Penn like drove by and she was literally like walking in the snow to her job at McDonald's. And so Penn started giving her rides. And then she was like, okay, what are your skill sets? And Penn actually hooked her up with a job as an executive assistant for one of her friends. Wow. Which gave Joanne full benefits, insurance, dental insurance, everything for herself and her two children. Wow. I know. So like Penn is basically a saint. So of course, Joanne loved Penn and now she had dental insurance for the first time. So she set up this dental appointment, but she still didn't have a car at this time. So Penn said she would take her. So it was really, really, really out of character that Penn just no showed and no called her. Yeah. Yeah. Like that just wouldn't happen. And Joanne knew that. So eventually, Joanne called her several times, but she really didn't want to miss this appointment. She got another friend from AA to give her a ride. But of course, she was extremely troubled by what had happened. And she didn't actually have Jonathan's direct information. So she called Penn a number of times, left a number of messages on her answering machine. But she also called several people who knew Jonathan to try to get a message over to him that Penn had never showed up and something was wrong. So by the time John got this message, it was in the afternoon. By the time he finds this out, he was like, "Uh uh-oh, this is a problem. He was on his way to an AWOL meeting, and AWOL stands for Another Way of Life, which is another support group for addicts and people who are looking to put their life back together after recovery. And he knew that Penn knew that that was like a big deal for him. So he actually hadn't really expected to hear from her because he was like leading this meeting and he was actually bringing some of these guys to and from the meeting. Okay. So he is trying to call her. He can't get a hold of her. Obviously, he's distracted for this entire meeting. And he tells the guys that he's giving rides to like, I'll definitely drop you guys off, but I have to stop by my girlfriend's house. I haven't been able to reach her all day. Something is very, very wrong. So he drives up to Penn's and he, the other two guys stay in the back seat and he has a a key to her house, obviously. So he notices right away that there's a light on the house. So he's like, okay, maybe that's good news. Maybe just something is weird with her phone, you know? And her car is in the garage. So he's like, okay, please be home. Please be home. Please be home. He entered with the key that she had given him and he was greeted immediately by Fluff, the dog. Yeah. And so he shouted all throughout the house, but Penn was not there. And this made the hair on the back of his neck rise up because Penn only had one car and she literally never went anywhere without Fluff. Fluff was like basically, you know, like an emotional support dog. Yeah. Like they even talked about how when she was at the farmer's market, it was technically no dogs allowed and she snuck Fluff in every time she worked and had made Fluff sleep like underneath a table where no one could see her. (laughs) You know, like she went everywhere with this dog. So he's like, wait, if her car is here and her dog's here, but she's not here, something's like super fucked up here. So he saw that, you know, her answering machine was blinking red. So he hit play and he listened to Joanne's calls, which were increasing in worry as the day went on. He heard his own voicemail several times. And then he heard one from Sandy Merritt. She said, hey, Penn, it's me, Sandy. Call me. I'm having lunch now. I want to talk to you more about the bombshell you dropped on me this morning. So Jonathan's like, bombshell? What bombshell? And suddenly an overwhelming feeling of doom overcame him. Penn was gone, and he believed that Sandy's erstwhile lover, a man named Ken Carpenter, had something to do with it. Let's talk about Ken. Okay. I don't know if I want to, but... You definitely don't. You're not going to like Ken. 
we're going to get to a certain level on the Andy Rageometer today. Ken Carpenter was born the middle of three sons in August 1951 in Greenfield, Massachusetts. So he spent his formative years in Chelmsford, where his parents owned two drive-in movie theaters, the normal kind in Chelmsford, and then they also owned one of the adult variety in neighboring Pinsborough. Drive-in adult theater? I'm just thinking about porn on that big screen. Okay, I cannot. That is so gross. And everyone's just jerking off in their cars. Oh, well, I mean, don't you think that's a little bit better, though, than like the actual movie theaters where they're jerking off in seats next to each other? How about everyone just does it in the safety of their own home? Well, this was like prior to home videos. I mean, you had to jerk off somewhere, I'm guessing. Okay, magazines? Okay, magazines would have been better. But yeah, it is a little weird if you like know, like you're selling tickets and you know everyone is a perv who's coming on in, you know? Yeah, and then you're like, hey, Joe. And he's like, hey, Ken. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) See you later. All those those cars were fogged up. You know they were. Oh, God. Yeah, so Ken was a football star, and he had eh grades in high school, and he never really amounted to much afterwards. <laughs> you could tell that I have pretty zero respect for <laughs> Ken over here. Pretty uh, below average. He was pretty below average in all ways. In his 20s, he was married and divorced twice. He did produce at least one son, but he never really found meaningful employment. His life somewhat turned around on December 13th, 1981, when Ken attended his first AA meeting and began a life of sobriety. Ken was actually really good at being sober, and he was really, really good at working the program. He was a magnetic speaker, and he was a generous sponsor. AA felt like something that he was good at. It also fed another addiction, however, an addiction to seducing vulnerable women. Ew, that's even worse. So bad. Oh, yeah, so horrible. Yeah, it fed into his most base and predatory instincts until the safe haven for so many women became a hunting ground for Ken. Okay, that's disgusting. It's really like an abuse of what the program is for. Yes, totally. So he's not good at AA. No, he's good at like being like a kind of a big man on campus with it, you know? That's not the place. This is what Kevin Flynn and Rebecca Lavoie had to say about him. Carpenter could scan the room and get an instant read of the female members. He could sense a woman's vulnerability the way animals sensed wounded prey. Ew. He would find an excuse to talk to that woman during a break or after the meeting. He seemed to have all of the answers, which was attractive to a susceptible woman. It excited him to play that role, and he did it again and again. Carpenter was stone-cold sober, but he still had the mind and predilections of an addict. He no longer got a rush from booze. Instead, he got a rush from these all-too-human interactions. The chemicals in his brain were triggered when he would approach a woman and play his game. He had declared himself helpless against alcohol, but didn't have the same misgivings about his own libido. Sex didn't give him a hangover the next morning. Ugh, that's so naughty. So not the point there, Ken. Ken Carpenter did seem to briefly give up his Lothario ways when he met pretty Cynthia Harvey, who went by the nickname Harv in July of 2000. Harv was in her 40s, sober, spiritual, and studying to become a nurse when she began dating Carpenter. The relationship progressed quickly, and the two eventually moved to rural Lempster, New Hampshire together. 
Though Harv was completely taken with Ken's magnetic energy, his inability to maintain stable employment put a damper on their relationship. Further troubling was Carpenter was resistant to marriage following his two failed unions, and that was something that Harv very much wanted. So they had some problems. Yeah. But one thing that they did have going for them was that they were both were committed to AA and sobriety. And I think definitely having a sober partner when you're sober is so helpful and so important, you know? Yeah, for sure. Someone who like understands the program and the steps. I mean, they also say that you shouldn't even date when you're in the program. Well, just for the first year. Yeah. Yeah. To work. Yeah. It's exactly. Like- and we're going to actually get into that in a little bit. So that that becomes an important part of this story as well. So they both would attend several AA meetings a week, not always at the same time because Harv had school. And then when she did start working as a nurse, she did night shifts. Okay. So they didn't always go to the meetings together, but they always went to several meetings throughout the week. And the most popular meetings were the ones that were held at Millie's Place in Newport, New Hampshire. And Millie's was a kind of clubhouse that specifically catered to AA meetings. Okay. So cool. Yeah, it was. It sounds like a really dope place, and it was definitely the most popular venue for AA meetings in the area because, like, other venues are usually, like, church basements and stuff like that, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it was at Millie's that Harv and Ken met another sober couple named Nick and Dot Monahan, and they became fast friends. The Monahans were initially taken by the affectionate couple, and everyone was delighted when it appeared that Ken had changed his mind about marriage and he proposed to Harv. So Ken and Harv asked Dot and Nick to be their maid of honor and best man, and a wedding date was set for early 2003. However, the Monahans began to have doubts about the couple when right before the wedding, Harv appeared at their house in tears about a horrible fight the couple had had about seemingly nothing. Harv confided in Dot that she had been scared of Ken, and she was also really like kind of mind spun about the fact that he could get so violently angry about some small inconsequential thing so fast. Yeah. And she confided that she was not sure if she should go through with the marriage. Yikes. But somehow Ken convinced her that it didn't matter and the red flag was ignored. And Ken and Harv were married in late February of 2003 in a small ceremony at Millie's place, followed by a reception at the Chinese restaurant in the same strip mall afterwards. Okay. Financially, the couple was not doing well. Eventually, Ken managed to get a part-time job as a greeter at Walmart to make ends meet, but money and suspicion of infidelity continued to plague the newlywed. Harv said very early on that she noticed he was getting letters from ex-girlfriends, like legit like letters in the mail being like, hey, I'm moving to this place. This thing is going on. I'd like to see you at some point. And she was like, I don't know if I like all of this. And he's like, yeah, but if I was like really going to cheat on you, I'd be hiding it. I wouldn't just like be leaving these letters out. And she's like, okay. (laughs) All right. I mean, what are you doing then? Are you just trying to show her that you're desired what's going on here yeah at the beginning she was like a little worried that he was still involved with some of his old girlfriends in truth she did have reason to be concerned but the object of ken's affection was not an old girlfriend it was a new one. Oh no uh-huh on january 23rd 2004 ken met sandra merritt at an aa meeting 
He would later say he was attracted to her not just for her vulnerability, but also because she suffered from the same illnesses he did, namely addiction issues and depression. Okay. How is that different from your current girl, though? You met her at AA as well. I guess, like, Harv wasn't depressed enough for him or something. Oh, my God. This guy. Yeah. I also, you know what's so crazy is that I have the book and there's pictures in the book. There's no pictures of Sandy anywhere. And I could not find a single picture of Sandy Merritt online either. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm guessing that she asked the authors to remain private, but she's described in the book as not particularly attractive. It said that she was somebody who, she looked like she didn't want to be noticed. Like she grew her bangs like long and dark and she like basically put them over her face kind of. Like the girl from Breakfast Club? Yes. I was thinking of her and I was also thinking of the woman from A League of Their Own who's like a really good baseball player. But like, yes, 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 yes. yes. And then she sings that song and it's so triumphant and she gets the cutest boyfriend and they're so happy. Yeah. Yeah. But like at the beginning, you know how she's kind of like hiding behind her Uh hair a little bit? Uh Uh-huh. That was kind of one of the impressions that I got as well. So Sandy lived on farmland that had once been owned by her parents in an apartment addition to her brother's farmhouse. Okay. She was a quiet woman who appreciated nature and animals, particularly her own dog, Moisha. So Sandy had been in a car accident recently, and they didn't say, but it, it, it kind of was alluded to that she might have been drinking when she got into the accident. Okay. So this accident really, really changed her perspective on life and like was like kind of was one of those moments where a mirror is held up to you and you're like, what the hell am I doing? I got to make changes in my life. Yeah. And so she had been in AA before, but she had relapsed. So after this car accident, she decided to get back into the program and once again, try to change her life. Right. And during this time, when she was really fresh back in AA is when she met Ken Carpenter. So gross. He's so gross. It's so gross. And she was going through a very tough time in her life. Like, oh, I everyone mean, is. And honestly, it doesn't even matter how long you're in AA. It still is a fucking challenge every time you have to get up and go to a meeting. And it's so fucked up that someone who's supposed to be in a safe place for you to go and talk about all of that is going to be approaching you in a predatorial way. It's insane. It's so disgusting. I hate him. I hate him so much. Yeah, you're not going to like him anymore if I keep talking. Basically, she met charismatic Ken Carpenter. And like, you know, we're both saying dating your first year in the program is a big AA no-no. But like Ken and I guess kind of Sandy were like, oh, but you know, she's worked the program before. It's not like she's a total newbie. They ba- oh, but basic- he's also about to be married or is married. No, he's already married. Yeah, like he's yeah. just married to someone who's in the program as well. Like anyone want to beep the horn on that? That's problem number one. Problem number two is he is married to Harv. <laughs> but Ken told Sandy that his marriage to Harv was only on paper these days. What? He said, yeah, he said that they were essentially separated, but they stayed legally married so that Ken could have insurance, which allowed him to seek psychiatric care and antidepressant medication. So he's like, yes, you probably have heard I'm married because remember, Harv's also an AA in this small community. 
But we are really just like, we're already getting divorced. We are only staying together because I don't have constant employment. He doesn't have insurance. So he gets his insurance through her job. Oh, it's so gross. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously Sandy was somebody who had suffered from depression and she knew the value of mental health, you know, assistance, support, medication. So she didn't question this. She was like, oh, of course, that makes sense. You know, that's a bummer for you guys, but I can understand why you would need to stay married in order to get the help you so need, you know? The fact that Harv and Ken's marriage was basically over would have come as quite a surprise to Harv. Yeah, you think? Yeah, the two had issues, of course, but Harv's religious beliefs inspired her to work through them. She was the breadwinner of the family, and now she was working a lot of nights nursing. After she would leave for work, Ken would go over to Sandy's apartment where they would watch their favorite television show, which was CSI, and they would make love. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And then Ken would hightail it home in the wee hours of the morning, and when Harv would come home, she'd be none the wiser that her husband had been with another woman all night long while she was working hard to pay the bills. Wow. The only time the two women nearly crossed paths was when they both stopped by Walmart to visit him at the same time, and he was forced to hide in the back while instructing coworkers to cover for him until both women left. Oh, my God. <gasps> sir, sir, you are in your 50s, sir, and you are hiding in the back of a Walmart like a little teenager whose girlfriends he's two-timing have come into the shop. <laughs> I... I cannot with this. He's a 50-something-year-old man. He's disgusting. He's disgusting. It's like such a bummer when people reach a certain age and do not mature at all or like no. become a better person or face real truths in their life or, you know. Yeah, it's and in his case, he's actually taking advantage of a program that is allowing people to do that. I know. And you'd think, like, you're right. He's not actually good at it. AA. If he was good at AA, he would have— He would respect it. Yeah. And he would respect the other people in the program and himself enough to not do this shit. And he was really playing both sides. Like, he never intimated to Harv at all, like, that their relationship had problems. Like, it's so weird. I do not know what this guy's endgame was because he was telling Harv, like, our relationship's never been better. I love you so much. Things are going great. I'm going to get a full-time job soon and things are going to be even better. Meanwhile, he's telling Sandy that they're going to get divorced and that he's going to marry Sandy. He even went as far to ask Sandy's brother if he could purchase a small plot of land on their family farm so he could build a house for he and Sandy to live in. Yeah, he's just crazy. Just crazy. Yeah, and so Sandy's brother was not keen on this idea, which didn't really matter anyways, because Ken did not have two nickels to rub together, yeah. let alone purchase a piece of land and build a house. Yeah, it's just like not even like a real thing. Not, it's like some fantasy idea he had about the future that was never going to happen. So at AA, Penn had taken sweet, injured Sandy under her wing, and Sandy ended up confiding in Penn about the relationship. Now, Penn did not pass moral judgment about the fact that Ken was still legally married, but she was 
very, very reasonably concerned about Sandy dating so early in her recovery. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's like number one before you can even get into the drama of the fact that he's still legally married. (laughs) Yeah. And that was also Penn taking, Penn knew of Ken Carpenter. She didn't know him very well personally. So she took, when Sandy was saying he's in the middle of a divorce, and we're doing this, she took it at face value. She's like, hey, I've been there. You know, she was working through her separation and divorce when she met Jonathan, you know? Yep. So she's like, sure, sure, sure. I get that. But what I'm really worried about is the fact that I don't think you're ready to be dating anybody right now. And it goes against the rules of the program, you know? Nonetheless, she allowed the couple access to her hiking trails and the lake, and she greeted them warmly whenever she saw them trekking past in her yard. But the stress of juggling two women must have gotten to Ken somehow because in October of 2004, he was fired from his job at Walmart for stealing. Oh my God, are you kidding? This dumbass was shoplifting from his own place of employment. Even worse, when he was caught, he tried to proposition the loss prevention officer. Here is how it went down from the book Notes on a Killing. The loss prevention officer, Terry Casey, had suspected him of stealing from the store for some time. She followed him around the store, taking mundane household items off the shelves, stuffing them in shopping bags and loading up a cart. Harf was homesick, so he took home some orange juice and NyQuil. When he pushed the carriage out of the store and to his car, Casey confronted him in the parking lot. Carpenter was smooth at first, still very sure of himself. This never happened, he said. He opened a bag of potato chips and offered to share them with his accuser. So stealing from Walmart, chic. Yep, 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 yep. I'm walking to my car and I will pay you tomorrow. Casey was firm with him, ordering him back inside. Carpenter gazed up and down at the busty blonde and asked if she wanted to have sex. Oh my God. No strings attached, he said, sweetening the offer. Ew. She thought Carpenter was doing all he could to keep his temper. He started to pump his fists and the veins on his head were popping out. Casey knew Carpenter got wound up quickly, but she found him easy to cool down too. She said she'd lose her job if he didn't come back inside with the stolen goods. Carpenter agreeably pushed the carriage back inside and was fired the next day. Good. You need some um, repercussions. I'm also, carriage is such a New England term yeah. for a shopping cart. The carriage. Totally. <laughs> totally. It's so British sounding. I love it. I love it. Well, Ken's life was about to get even worse because one month later, his and Harv's good friends, the Monahans, held a booze-free housewarming party and invited several of their AA friends. When Penn arrived at the party, she witnessed Ken and Harv in the Monahan's kitchen arm in arm laughing and looking very much the married couple that they actually were. It became abundantly clear to Penn in that moment that Ken was two-timing both women and had no intention of leaving his wife. Nope, none. So Ken was alarmed when he finally noticed Penn staring and quickly worked to corner her privately where he begged her not to tell Sandy, but Penn refused to lie for him. Yeah, two, no. She was like, absolutely not. Are you insane? And Penn warned him that she was going to tell Sandy the truth. And she said, get ready because she's going to confront you. She said, you can do whatever you want to your wife, but I won't let you hurt my friend. Yeah. <sighs> I know. And it's, ugh, okay. Go ahead. 
Yeah. So Ken was really <laughs> pissed off though, because, you know, it seems like he's a manipulator who likes to yep. control situations. And he does not like that she's going to be strong-willed against him. Absolutely. There was no way this guy could have ever convinced Penn to go back on her own morals or beliefs, you know, or her own code, which was based in truth and honesty. So Penn did tell Sandy, of course, and Sandy confronted Ken three days after the party when Ken showed up at her house. Ken tried the old deny, deny, deny and called Penn a liar. But Sandy believed her friend and dumped Ken on the spot. Good. Mm-hmm. Good for Sandy. That's some backbone right there. That's not yep. easy to do. No, not at all. Yeah. So Ken, being the narcissistic piece of shit that he is, tried everything to worm his way back into Sandy's good graces. He called her. He showed up on her doorstep with gifts. He left flowers and chocolate at her doorstep. But Sandy held firm. She wanted nothing to do with the no good cheat. Good. But because Ken is the type of lowlife who blames everybody else for his problems, he directed all of his fury at Penn for being a meddler. Like that was like his take on this is that. Of course. He he didn't do anything anything wrong. wrong. No. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the anger led to a confrontation in a parking lot after an AA meeting when Ken got in Penn's face and told her to stay out of his business. He also accused her of trying to set up Sandy with a new man. So The previous Thursday had been Thanksgiving, and of course, I mean, you could have guessed this, Penn being Penn, she always had, like, a doors open Friendsgiving, you know? Yeah, of course. Of course. This is just so her. And Sandy had come, and Sandy had brought a platonic male friend, like somebody she knew from her childhood, it sounds like. Okay. And somehow Ken had found out about Sandy having a date at Penn's. Oh, my God. It made him absolutely irate. So yeah, I guess it was like this really terrible scene where Ken was like screaming in Penn's face and like fully ranting. And like by the time he peeled out, she was like full on shaking. (laughs) Peeled out. You know. You know what a peel out is. (laughs) No, I know what a peel out is. It's just like what level of douchery are we working with here? (laughs) Yeah, like the full on peel out with the squealing tires and like the little like rubber marks. Yeah. 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 One of those. I'm I'm mad. Yeah. <laughs> because he is mentally a teenager. Unfortunately, Penn wasn't the only one he was harassing. He would not leave Sandy alone. He began to stalk her at AA meetings, trapping her and trying to force her to reconcile. He called her obsessively and he even showed up at her home several times unannounced and uninvited until Sandy's brother was forced to step in and tell him to get lost. Oh, my God. Yeah. At this point, her brother and her friends became so concerned at Ken's increasingly erratic and aggressive behavior that they convinced her to call the police. Penn also submitted a police report because she was also worried for Sandy. Okay. The cops called Ken and told him to stop calling Sandy, but only a week later, Sandy's brother caught him at the property, leaving a bouquet of flowers at her doorstep. Oh my God, you're married. You're married. I know. Stop it. Just stop Stop. it. Stop. Loser. I mean, but this also would not even be appropriate behavior for a single person. This is harassment. No, I know. No means no. I mean, this is doubly inappropriate, you know? This is more than doubly inappropriate. Yeah. Quadruply inappropriate. 
It is it is quintuply inappropriate. That's it. That's as high as I can go. I don't know. Sextuply. Sextuply sounds too alluring. Uh, yeah. Never mind. Scratch that. Scratch it. <laughs> the final straw was when he left a letter for Sandy begging her to come back to him and to stop letting Penn ruin her life. He claimed in this angry letter to Sandy that Penn was a jealous harpy who had never been loved the way Ken loved Sandy and wanted to ruin their happiness out of spite. Oh, my God. Yeah, Sandy was really scared after getting this message because it was just so brimming full of rage, you know? Yeah. And she was also at this point scared to attend AA meetings because she was frightened that Ken could corner her there, you know? So scary. And it was it was a really shitty situation for her because, you know, her own sobriety was being challenged in this situation. So she reached out to some AA friends and they decided that she needed Millie's place to be a safe haven. And the way to do it was to get a restraining order. So Ken was enraged when he got the court summons about the protective order. Number one, because they were preventing him from attending meetings at Millie's, which he felt like was his place, you know? Of course he did, but it's not. But it's not. But number two, he was also now forced to tell Harv what was going on. He had somehow managed to keep all of this away from I was literally just going to ask what the fuck is going on with Harv. So I don't know if he was doing this when she was working long shifts at the hospital and that's how he got away with it, you know. But she didn't know until this point. But when he got the court summons, he's going to need to go to court. And then he's also going to need to explain to her why they can't go to meetings at Millie's anymore. So it's it's time for him to finally fess up. So he told Harv that he had had an affair and it had ended poorly. But the bigger issue was that Penn had meddled and he was getting a BS restraining order against him. So he was saying, I didn't really do anything. I didn't love this woman. And yes, we had an affair, but it ended. And then for some reason out of the blue, this crazy Penn is making this woman file a restraining order on me, even though I haven't bothered her at all. So it's all bullshit. My God. Yeah. And Harv was obviously devastated and confused, but she was also like really thrown about it being Sandy for a couple of reasons. Number one, she kind of knew Sandy. They had been at some meetings together and Sandy just did not seem like some like, you know, seductive homewrecker, you know, Ms. Steal Your Man over here. Yeah. She was just like this like sweet, kind of insecure, fragile seeming woman, you know, and like basically Harv had had a lot of sympathy for her. So she was like, that's really weird. That's not like who I would have thought of as the other woman. And I'm also like really angry and I still want my husband, which is making me confused. And I don't know whether I should like work through my vows. Like I vowed to love him no matter what, even though he broke his vows. She is just like a mess at this point. Everything is like swirling around in her head. And she eventually decided that she was going to reclaim her man. And because she wants to stand by Ken, you know, the anger, all of the anger about the situation, she's now projecting upon Sandy. Okay. So she apparently told her friend Dot, I just want to go home and have Ken hold me. How could Sandy have done this to me? It's like, I do, I do have sympathy for Harv, but like when you're in this situation... It's like Sandy doesn't owe you anything. You know who does? Your husband. Your husband owes exactly. you a whole lot. You yeah. know? People who get mad at the other woman and not the husband. 
Yeah, that drives me crazy. I know, me too. But I'm I'm sure it's so hard to like to see it when you're in it, you know? Oh, no, especially she wanted to be with him. She wanted to get back together with him. She wanted to fix the marriage. And it's kind of hard to hold that person accountable and feel the anger and work through it at the same time you're like, you know, deciding that you're going to still be with them, you know? It's much easier to be like, it's somebody else's fault. Even though he might be a horrible, cheating piece of shit. Yeah. At the same time. <laughs> yeah, but Lasai, here we are. She was committed to stand by her man. Meanwhile, Creepy Ken is still trying to contact Sandy at this point. He even went as far to beg her sponsor to pass a message to her, mm. which was flatly denied. Her sponsor was like, oh, hell no. So he raged to his friends that if Penn had kept her mouth shut, he would still have his wife and his girlfriend, and that, quote, bitch had ruined his life. Oh, my God. So intense. Again, talking about misplacing anger, you know? At one AA meeting, he began to speak to the group about his affair while Harv cried, but then turned the speech into a vitriolic diatribe directed at Penn, who was in the audience. He railed and ranted against people who couldn't mind their own business or sweep their own side of the street in, like, AA vernacular. Penn finally exploded back. She said, the principles of AA are honesty and taking responsibility for your own actions. And if you have a trouble with the honesty part of the program, then you should start working the steps again. There we go. Snap, snap, snap. Someone, someone got put in their place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, basically, she was not having it. So the restraining order hearing was held on Monday, December 13th, 2004, and a judge ordered Ken Carpenter to have zero contact with Sandra Merritt and to stay away from Millie's place where she was known to go to AA meetings. Penn testified on Sandy's behalf at the hearing, which only stoked Ken's anger further. The judge told Ken that the restraining order would be in place for one full year, though Sandy could withdraw the order early if she wished. Ken tried to argue that 90% of the time he went to a meeting, Sandy wasn't there, and he felt like it would jeopardize his sobriety to have to find a new location. Ah, come on. Come on. He's like, well, why doesn't she just tell me whenever she's going to a meeting and then I'll know to avoid it? And they're like, oh, wait, okay, so the person who has a protective order against you, you want her to give you a list of where she'll be at certain times. Yeah, we're not going to do that. What are you thinking? We're trying to protect this person. We're not going to give them her schedule. Yeah, well, it's hard to comprehend those things when your brain is the size of a peanut. Yeah. Yeah. And so basically he's like, so what if like I'm having dinner with my wife and she walks into the restaurant, I have to leave. And the judge is like, yes, that's what a restraining order is. It is your responsibility to not be, you know, with the hundred yards of this woman, you know? <sighs> yeah. Well, so not having dinner at this place is really going to jeopardize my sobriety. Yeah, he's basically complaining about all of this. And finally, the judge just shuts him down. He said, it may be inconvenient, but you should have heeded the warnings that came from everyone else long before you got to me. I don't think anybody has sympathy for you. Certainly not the court. You've brought this situation on yourself. Good. Uh, mm -hmm. Despite this warning, only two days after the hearing, Ken showed up at Millie's place to celebrate the 23-year anniversary of his sobriety. Ugh, that's what he's really mad about. He's like, I don't get to celebrate my birthday. Exactly. And that's and what he's like, mad about. He wanted to go to the place where everybody knew him. Yep. 
And he didn't want to go to another place, to a new meeting, you know? And so everybody was really uncomfortable that he came. And they're like, wait, he's not supposed to be here. Are we supposed to kick him out? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to call the police, you know? And apparently, like, Sandy was going to come to that meeting. And she, like, literally drove there, saw that he was in there with Harv and was like, what the fuck? He's not supposed to be around me. He's not supposed to be here. And she had to leave. You know, she left. So basically, they're like, okay, this is not good. But on further inspection, the order did not specifically name Millie's place, like in the restraining order. So Sandy had to go back to the court to try to amend it. In the meantime, the board of directors at Millie's barred Ken from entering and put a sign on the door explicitly stating that Ken was not welcome. Oh, my God. So he was like straight 86th from there. He was straight up 86 from there. That's correct. Yeah. And of course, Ken was humiliated. And we all know that a humiliated narcissist is a dangerous narcissist. True. Harv was also humiliated. And she took her frustration out by grilling Ken on his relationship with Sandy. Though he swore he had never loved the other woman, Harv was not convinced. In an effort to be totally honest, Ken shared his journals with Harv, which detailed romantic hikes, movies, and restaurant date nights with Sandy. Harv was so, so sad about this. I guess Ken never did any of those things with her. Oh, my God. He also revealed that he got a high from chasing after other women. He admitted to Harv that he had decided to pursue Sandy Merritt the moment he met her. And at the end of their relationship, he had already picked out another young woman in AA to go after. Jesus. Harv prayed for the strength to mend her marriage. It's like, girl, you should have prayed for the strength to leave your marriage. Oof. Ken claimed to her that he would put his cheating ways behind him, and he vowed that he had completely moved on from Sandy, but that was, of course, a lie. Not only did he violate his restraining order by calling Sandy at work, he began to park outside of Penn's house menacingly. Oh, my God. Yeah. So after the phone call, Ken was arrested for violating the stalking order, and he was charged with a Class A misdemeanor. He tried to say that the call was an accident, and like I said, Sandy worked at a place called the Animal Inn, and I guess he had a dog, and his vet was called the Animal Hospital. and so. He knew exactly what he was doing when he called Sandy at her place of work, but he tried to tell the cops like, oh, I just thought I was calling my vet and she heard my voice and got things misconstrued. It was a total accident on my part. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's total bullshit. Basically, at this point, Harv is even struggling to believe him. So she's like, maybe you need to go stay with your friend Jim Swan for a little bit while we get our marriage strained out because I cannot believe that you were trying to call her again, you know? Yeah. On February 22nd, 2005, the day before Penn would go missing, she attended an AA meeting with Jonathan and was in really good spirits. She asked Jonathan to spend the night, but John had a lot of prep to do for the AWOL meeting the next day and declined. Before she left, he gave her a kiss and said, you're my Penn, and Penn smiled and replied, you're my cop. It would be the last time that Jonathan would ever see Edith Penn Meyer. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh's family-friendly menu is a big win for the back-to-school season with easy, delicious recipes for drama-free dinners. 
HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, from vegetarian meals and calorie-smart choices to extra-special gourmet options. There's something for everyone to enjoy, with recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Planning meals with a baby, a busy career, and a podcast is definitely a challenge. It's been such a game-changer to have a service that takes all of the work out of planning. It's always a huge relief when I see the box at my front door. The fall harvest is officially on with HelloFresh. Count on seasonal recipes like pumpkin cinnamon rolls, yum, and Friendsgiving ready sides, as well as fresh, high-quality ingredients that travel from the farm to your front door in less than a week. Go to HelloFresh.com slash LoveMurder14 and use code LoveMurder14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash LoveMurder14 and use code LoveMurder14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. 30 million women are impacted by weakened and thinning hair. If you're among them, know you're not alone and there's a solution you can trust to deliver results. Thousands of women have taken back control of their hair with Nutrafol, with many users raving that the supplement not only transformed their hair, but restored their confidence too. Nutrafol offers two targeted formulas for women that are clinically shown to improve hair growth and thickness with less shedding through all stages of life. Healthier hair growth takes time. You'll begin to experience thicker, stronger, faster growing hair in three to six months. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months. More than 1,500 top doctors recommend Nutrafol as an effective and high-quality solution for healthier hair. I love Nutrafol because no matter your stage in life, Nutrafol has a solution. Nutrafol women is ideal if you're experiencing thinning hair caused by stress, dieting, overstyling, and environmental toxins, while women's balance is formulated with additional hormone support for those with thinning hair through menopause. The one that I am taking is specifically targeted for postpartum hair loss needs. Girl, me too. And that one is great because it's breastfeeding safe. Mm -hmm. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code LOVEMURDER to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere and it is only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com. Promo code LOVEMURDER. The next morning, February 23rd, brought heavy snows. At just before 7 a.m., a neighbor saw Penn out in the snow walking fluff. Lovely morning, the neighbor grumbled sarcastically to her as he dug his car out. Penn actually beamed. It's beautiful. I love it. So sincerely that it actually made the grumpy neighbor smile. He would be the last person to see Penn alive, aside from her killer, that is. Wow. About a half hour after that moment is when Sandy received Penn's mysterious call imploring her to drop the restraining order and reunite with Ken. At 9.35 a.m., Joanne Dufour realized Penn was late to pick her up for her dentist appointment and began to worry. By the early afternoon, Jonathan was informed that something was wrong. And by 9.30 p.m. that night, he suspected that Ken Carpenter had done something terrible to his beloved Penn. So, Jonathan called both of Penn's ex-husbands. He couldn't get a hold of Richard Rankin, but he did connect with Colin, her first husband, who also called their three adult children, and absolutely no one had heard from Penn. 
so scary. It's so scary. You can imagine how this guy is feeling too at this moment. Yeah, you know? no, I can't. It makes me ill. When Jonathan finished calling her friends, he called the police to report a missing person. While he was waiting for the state troopers to arrive, he called Sandy, who told him about the bizarre phone call. And this is when Jonathan, like, really started to worry. Yeah. He knew that Penn would never in a million years suggest that Sandy reconcile with Ken. He knew then definitively, like, his gut instinct was, like, 100% Ken had kidnapped Penn and forced her to make that call. Okay. And, you know, he just hoped that Ken still had her alive, you know? Yeah, of course. Like, had her kidnapped somewhere. Exactly. So he is, like, super angry now. He is trying to reach Ken at his house in Lempster. He's, like, talking to Harv. He is trying to call Jim Swan's house. He's like, let me talk to that mother effer. And he needs to tell me where Penn is because I know he did something with her. Eventually, both the state troopers and Penn's family made it over in the snow to discuss what might have happened. And Jonathan was completely irate. And he's like, look, I know who it was. I know that Ken took her. But Penn's family at this point did not necessarily like see it that way. In fact, they thought that Jonathan was being kind of sketchy. Like he was at her house. He had been like camping out there. He refused to leave. He was like controlling the crime scene. He was like thrown around wild accusations. So they're like, maybe he's protesting too much. Maybe he did something and he's trying to throw suspicion on this other guy, you know? Yep. So the state troopers are like, you know what? It does seem like something sketchy happened to this woman. We're going to investigate. And here's who they thought could have done it at the beginning. So number one, they're like, let's look at Richard Rankin. That's her second husband. I guess their divorce had been super acrimonious. And Richard had been extremely jealous at how fast Penn had moved on with Jonathan. Huh. Penn's children also did not believe that he was above violence. They were like, it was a bad, bad breakup. So he could have done something with her completely. Number two, Jonathan himself as it's always the husband slash partner, you know? Yeah. And then, like I said, he's controlling the crime scene. He's like, you know, sometimes it's the person that calls the police that is like trying to control the narrative or that would, you know, if like some of his DNA is on or whatever, you know, like it's like he's controlling this whole situation. So that's kind of sketchy. And yeah. then, of course, number three, maybe it really was Ken Carpenter who had something to do with Penn's disappearance. And, like, even though he would seem further out from her, like, when you're talking about a lover and an ex-lover, they would be higher on the, you know, suspect list normally. He did have some, you know, good reasons. Like, she had testified against him in the hearing. You know, there had been tons of witnesses that had said that the two had gotten into altercations at AA. You know, there's just, there was a lot that they were like, okay, wait. It could be this guy. And then when they look him up, they realize that Sandy Merritt is not the only one who has a restraining order against him. Okay. About almost like I think 10 years prior, his own sister-in-law had gotten a restraining order against him as well. Okay. So like this does not look good for this guy. So let's investigate all three of these suspects and see what we find. So they almost immediately rule out Jonathan. Jonathan had a ton of alibis for the day. Remember, he was like with all those people for the AWOL meeting. He was like literally carpooling people around. He also had absolutely no motive. He truly adored Penn. So he's crossed off the list pretty quickly. And then Richard, who seemed like a very viable suspect for a little while, 
uh, especially because no one could reach him for a couple days. So there was some real fear that he had taken pen and went on the run, you know, but it just ended up that he had actually been vacationing in Florida and he didn't have a cell phone. And also when he found out that Penn was missing, he was like hysterical. Like he clearly had not gotten over her. He told the police, like, I'm still in love with her. I totally fucked up our relationship, but I want, I want to do anything I can help. And like, was like literally bereft. He was like as sad as Jonathan was, you know? Okay. So with that, you know, with them being excluded, now the police are beginning to focus on Ken Carpenter. The morning after Penn's disappearance, the troopers went out to Ken and Harv's house where they found Ken snowblowing their walkway. The trooper noted in the report that Ken smelled very strongly of wood smoke. But in rural New Hampshire in the winter, that's hardly uncommon. He claimed that on the previous day, he had been snowshoeing at a local golf club and then returned to his friend Jim Swan's house where he'd been staying during his marriage difficulties. He said he then drove to his psychiatrist's office for a 9.30 a.m. appointment, but then decided not to go in. He said he returned home to the Lempster house to burn some brush and do some stuff around the house, though he could not give the cops any sort of clear schedule of what he did and when he did it. Oh, yeah. He's like, I don't know. The rest of the afternoon was pretty hazy. So the cops are like, cool, cool, cool. Let's head over to that golf club and look for any evidence that you were there at all. And there's nothing. (laughs) No one saw him. There's no record of him parking. And the cops even drove all over the golf course and there was no snowshoe marks in the snow. Oh, Kenny Ken. Yeah, there's nothing. He is lying. Furthermore, a woman who lived on Penn Street reported seeing a man who fit his description idling around the corner from Penn's house in a grayish station wagon type vehicle at 630 in the morning. Ken Carpenter had told authorities that he had driven his wife's car that day and he was later caught on a gas station security camera driving this car. And Harve had a dark purple hatchback, but in the dark of 630 in the morning and with the salt spray on like the sides of cars, which is what cars in New England Mm -hmm. look like in the winter, the car did appear gray. So of course, and all cars appear gray. Yeah. yeah. And the hatchback (laughs) is kind of station wagony, you know, so you could say it's the same type of car. So they're like, okay, this is potentially matching up. So they go back to Ken to tell him that his snowshoeing story was total bullshit. And then he's like, oh, shit. Sorry. I actually meant the high school. That's right. I went snowshoeing at the high school, not the golf club. Silly me. Okay, Ken, it's not looking good for you, babe. No. And then he's like, oh, yeah. And like, maybe I went the day before and I'm mixing my days up. So maybe I wasn't even there at all. Like, they're like, uh, okay. He's like, yeah, I guess my uh, my memory is just not that great anymore. So the investigators totally know that he is full of shit at this point. So they're like, let's press hard on him. And they get poor Sandy to call him and record the conversation, which okay. I, I understand the necessity of, obviously, this woman's a huge emotional trigger for him and she could potentially get him to confess. But it's yep. also very traumatizing to ask Sandy to have to have conversations with this man who stalked her, harassed her, and potentially killed her friend. Ugh. So yeah, I can imagine how poor Sandy was feeling in this moment. So in the calls, Ken did not straight up admit to anything, but he alluded to Penn having another boyfriend, just like in the mystery call. He's like, she she was basically saying, I'm really worried about Penn. 
do you know anything that happened? You have to tell me if you did. And he's like, no, but didn't she have, you know, another boyfriend she would just run off with? And first of all, no one thought that. And it echoed the same script that he had made Penn read, you know? So that was pretty suspect. So yeah, he's like, well, maybe if you get back together with me, we can go out and search for Penn together. Ew. Ew. Mm-hmm. Ken also made an anonymous phone call to the police station saying that he had dropped Penn off at the airport and that she was planning on flying down to the islands. And the investigator who took the call recognized Ken's voice. Stop. He's like, Ken, I know it's you, buddy. So the, in quotations, anonymous caller went on to say that Penn had left something in a payphone at the Goshen convenience store. Security cameras caught Ken entering the store and purchasing a newspaper and a candy bar around that exact time. But the phone booth was just out of the camera's vision. So they didn't actually have him like right on camera making the call. Oh my God. Yeah. In the payphone, they found a bank envelope with a security deposit box key. When the officers got a warrant for Penn's safety deposit box, they discovered a lot of financial records, some jewelry, and Penn's passport. It is totally unclear to me what Ken thought he was doing here because it only confirmed that Penn was not traveling outside of the U.S. like he had suggested. He led them right to her passport, you know? Yeah, but did he did he know the passport was in there? He did not know it because they said that there was records of Penn accessing this, the deposit box like of some weeks earlier and nobody had been in there since. So he didn't know what was in there. Yeah, I mean, not that he would know what a passport looked like if it hit him straight across the fucking head, but... <laughs> On another recorded call to Sandy, Ken suggested that new information was going to come out about the case, lying to her by saying he had talked to a trooper and there was going to be some evidence that Penn just took off and was vacationing somewhere, which I think it's insane that he thought that this so-called anonymous tip was going to be like some new evidence that the police were going to go, oh, yeah, you know, this random guy who didn't identify himself said he dropped her off at the airport, so guess case closed, you know? (laughs) Race closed. And so Sandy countered that the authorities knew he was the one who planted the safety deposit box key. She was like, Ken, um, they caught you on camera. They know it was you. And Ken was flustered, but he still admitted to no ill doing. It did probably shake him up, however, though, because that night he voluntarily committed himself to the hospital, saying that he was having suicidal thoughts. Hmm. While Ken was in the hospital, the police got a warrant to search his property. So now it's February 28th, and Penn has been missing for five days. So Jonathan and her family are desperately hoping that she is somewhere alive, but, they, you know, every single day that goes by, it's looking less and less likely. Yeah. At this point, it was snowing heavily again, and the investigators basically it was like kind of like dusk out, so it's basically dark, and they are out there in a blizzard with flashlights and like full winter gear, like searching the property. And they found a large fire pit that was still slightly smoldering. Oh my God. Yeah. Inside the pit, the investigators found bone fragments that seemed human-like. Oof. So they believed at this point that they had potentially found Penn's last resting place. But the snow is just crazy coming down. It is a proper nor'easter. So 
they have to put a tarp over everything and come back the next day with a complete forensics team and literally dig out the crime scene. Whoa. This is like a hella New England case right here. I guess I should say a wicked New England crime. So it's a wicked New England crime. They also searched the house and a shed on the property. In the shed, they found a 22 Marlin rifle that they believed could be the murder weapon. In the main house, they found a super-duper suspect piece of paper. At the top of the paper, it said, Agreement to Sell Personal Property. It was a one-page purchase and sales agreement template, but the template was not filled out. It didn't say in any of the blank lines what was being sold or what the price was. Although the agreement detail at the top had been left blank, the date of the transaction had been filled in with pen. February 23rd, 2005, the day Penn Meyer had vanished. The document also had two signatures written in cursive at the bottom. The seller had signed her name, Edith K. Meyer, and the buyer had countersigned as Ken Carpenter. Ah. So it seems pretty clear that Ken was trying to set up what, which is essentially theft of some of Penn's property. And he must have decided against it. He kept the paper, but he decided against it because obviously he was going to look guilty, you know? Oh, my God. But the date on the blank agreement does prove that Ken was with Penn on the day she disappeared. And he had previously told the authorities that he hadn't seen Penn for over two weeks before she went missing. Yeah, he's a lying piece of shit. And that's not the only thing the police found. Oh, no. They also found one of Ken's journals, which included entries that ranted and raved about that quote, bitch, Penn Meyer, as well as obsessive musings over Sandy and whether she was dating her Thanksgiving date. There was also a bizarre entry seemingly written by an imaginary pen that investigators believed was a first draft of what Ken forced Penn to say on the phone, most likely at gunpoint. Yeah. It read that Penn hadn't meant for the situation to go so far and that loving Sandy was Ken's only crime. Oh, my God. In fact, imaginary Penn suggested that Sandy should drop the restraining order and, quote, take Ken home and fuck his brains out. Oh, my God. He is out of his mind. Out of his mind. The rest of the script followed pretty closely to what Penn had actually said that day to Sandy. And like that she was going to be traveling in South America and that Ken and Sandy should move into her house while she was away. On the next page, Ken had written the word burn in large letters. And then, Andy, you're going to lose your mind. He sketched a stick figure drawing of two people. Nearby was a square house and a fire. One of the stick figures was pointing a stick rifle and shooting the other. He in third grade? I told you there's something seriously wrong with this guy. Who does a stick figure sketch of the murder they are committing or committed? This is straight up out of a movie. Uh, when I was listening to this audiobook, I was like, I, I think I just like burst out laughing. I was like, who does that? I can't. I was in the middle of the woods and I was like, what? Wow. Oh, my God. Were the investigators like, well, Yep, they're like, oh, guys, I think he did it. I think, I mean, we got to still look at those bone fragments, but this 
is like his little murder map over here. Murder sketch. Oh my God. What a moron. So the next day, the medical examiner was able to positively identify that the bone fragments did belong to a human, but unfortunately she could not extract DNA from them, which of course is a huge bummer. The bones had been burnt for several hours over a couple days and it had caused them to become too brittle to extract DNA from. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, they also could not find any teeth at this point, and the skeleton appeared to be incomplete. So they're like, there have to be some more remains somewhere else. They have to keep looking, you know? And the bigger problem is that the medical examiner refused to sign a death certificate for Penn because there was nothing that definitively proved that the human remains were Penn, you know? Oh, God, that's such a bummer. Yeah, and this is, of course, problematic because the police were very ready to arrest Ken Carpenter for the murder because, I mean, God damn it, you saw all of that evidence I just talked to you about. Yeah. But it's kind of hard to arrest somebody for murder of somebody who has not been technically declared dead, you know? Yeah, but... There has to be extenuating circumstances here. Yeah, and that's what they hoped for. So they appealed to the New Hampshire Attorney General, and they were like, look, I know we don't have a death certificate, but we have X, Y, and Z, this, and this, and this. And shockingly, she was like, you know what? Go for it. Let's do this thing. And the AG's office issued an arrest warrant for Ken. Good. So the cops arrested Ken at the hospital where he was moments away from fleeing. Like, he was, like, all set to leave. He was trying to leave when they got there. So they got there the in hospital? the— the hospital. Yeah, he was trying okay. to, like, take off from the hospital. So luckily, they caught him in the nick of time. And also, right before he was arrested, he had called Sandy Merritt from the hospital and left a message on her answering machine. Now, at this point, the cops had actually told Sandy to move out of her house, like, while she was, like, making these phone calls because they were worried that he was going to come after her, you know? So she had been spending the last couple days in a motel, so that's why she wasn't home to actually receive this message. Hi, it's me, Ken said. I'm just seeing if you got that check and everything left for you. I don't understand that, but uh, you suck. And then he hung up. Stop it. Everything about this guy is so terrible. Oh, my God. He's the worst. Yeah. By the time she got this message, Ken was already in jail. And basically the police had been like, hey, you can head home. You're safe now. He's in our custody, you know? So she gets this message and she's like, what the hell is he talking about? The check and everything that he left me. So she goes through her mail that had been piling up over the last few days that she's been gone. And she found a handwritten envelope that contained a $400 check made out to her from Penn as well as an agreement to sell Sandy Penn's house and complete contents of her house for $1. The agreement included Sandy and Penn's forged signatures at the bottom. Like, this just wouldn't happen. She would leave her house to her children, you know? Oh, my God. What a fucking loser. Did he think that Sandy would be grateful? Did he think that this was somehow going to legally pass muster, you know? And that she would want a house instead of her friend. She would never. Yeah. Never. Never. I mean, immediately. She immediately called the police and turned over the envelope, the check, and the voicemail. Meanwhile, Ken is now behind bars, and he is singing a different tune to his wife. He is, like, full-on BSing her. He's like, God has put me on this path to make our marriage stronger. 
I've found religion while I've been in here. I never love Sandy. What, for I the past 12 now. hours? Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah. He's like, my life has turned around. He just, this guy cannot stop lying. So the cops and the prosecutor are a little worried at this point that the bone fragments that they found are not enough. So they continue to dig deeper. They're searching the property. They're also going to Ken's loved ones and interviewing them to see if they can get any like little nugget of truth that could lead to some more evidence. And Ken's son eventually did come forward to say that he had been given a word processor and some art that was wrapped in blankets by his uncle who had removed them from Ken's house at Ken's request. Okay, but also like the murder map's not enough. I know, it really should be. I mean, but he can just argue that he has like, you know, an overactive imagination or something, you know? Like it's not definitively proof of a crime. It's just extremely suggestive. I think like any defense attorney could probably tear it apart as real evidence, you know? Okay. So in a recorded prison call, Ken was like way stressed out about these blankets and this word processor especially. So the son eventually called the police and was like, he seemed really into these things. You might want to check them out. Upon inspection, they can match the impressions on the ribbon of the word processor and prove that the fraudulent purchase agreement that was given to Sandy Merritt was actually typed on this exact machine. Okay. I'm surprised that he thought about that. I know. Me too. That's actually really smart. I don't know if I would have thought about that, the word processor ribbon. Yeah. They also theorize that potentially he killed Penn at her house. Like he made her make the phone call from her house where he had like barged in on her. Um, He killed her with a 22, which actually doesn't cause a lot of blood. It kind of just like goes into your head and you're dead, you know? Okay. And then he had wrapped her in these blankets and transported her back to his house where he burned her. And so they think that's why he was also concerned about these blankets but he must have like really washed them well or something because they could not lift any DNA off of the blankets. Oh, really? Mm-mm. Yeah. So they also interview Ken's brother, Dale, and his wife, Betty Ann. And Betty Ann shared a harrowing tale about Ken and why she had had to file a restraining order against him more than a decade earlier. She said that when Ken had originally gotten clean in the 1980s, he had requested and this is like red flag weirdo, that his sister-in-law, Betty Ann, and she alone check him into rehab or he wouldn't go. What? Yeah. So she complied because she wanted, you know, him to get sober. But as she was dropping him off at the hospital where the rehab center was, he sexually assaulted her. He forced his hand down her pants. And then when she struggled, he bit her so hard that he actually broke the skin. Wow. Yeah, luckily security saw the commotion and managed to restrain him. And then he went into rehab. But like when he got out, they basically just had kind of a Cold War situation. Like they were like, you, let's just both pretend this doesn't didn't happen for the family. And maybe it was just like the alcoholism, you know. But some years later in 1992, when most of the family was actually at Ken and Dale's dying father's hospital bedside, Ken knew that Betty Ann was home alone because he knew his brother was at the hospital and he drove to her house and told her he was going to kill her. 
he proceeded to chase her around the house. Like in the book, they detail like literally like they're like running on opposite sides of like the dining room table. He is like telling her he's going to kill her and her children are there screaming and crying and like begging him to leave her alone. Wow. So on one of these like she running running around like the table, she manages like to grab this phone and call the direct line to the hospital room and she tells her husband to get home right away because Ken is there threatening to kill her. And so Dale is like racing home at this point. And apparently Kent, like she's like, you better not be here when my husband gets home. He's going to kill you. And I guess Ken did leave at that point. Um, but then according to the book Notes on a Killing, after the incident, Ken Carpenter continued to stalk his sister-in-law. He would rev his engine when he passed the house. He would circle the block where she worked and give her the finger. Oh, my God. It's like, it's terrifying. He left a threatening message for her on her answering machine. After listening to the message, his own brother, Dale, encouraged Betty Ann to get a restraining order. It compelled Carpenter to keep 25 yards away from his sister-in-law and her children. It was in effect for one year. During that time, Carpenter never explicitly violated it, but the intimidation continued. He would drive the streets she used to bring her kids to school, and he would point at her as she went by, mouthing the words, I'm going to get you. Wow. Yeah, that's his own sister-in-law. So while awaiting trial in prison on June 25th, Ken told Harve during a visit that he needed her to go out to a remote stump on their property and get rid of its contents. So he even drew her a map. He's like, there's just some stuff that might get me in trouble. I just need you to toss it for me. So when she returned home, she basically was like, I feel like I don't want to know. Like, I don't want to go because I feel like I'm going to find out something I don't want to know about this, you know? Yeah. But in the end, you know, her curiosity got the better of her. And she followed the path on the map. So she followed the path on the map. Resting in and around the old stump, Harve found more burned bones, ash, and Penn's trademark silver bangle bracelets. Stop. Yeah. At that point, she knew that she had found the rest of Penn Meyer, and she just collapsed on the ground and started hysterically crying. So clearly, Ken did not believe that Harve would ever betray him because he put her in this absolutely terrible situation. And Harve, a religious woman, called her pastor for counsel. And her pastor was like, yeah, you need to immediately call the police. Good. Yeah. And she struggled with this, but she trusted her pastor. And they came and they collected all the new evidence and it, it really aided in the search. Penn's children very sadly identified the jewelry as hers. Like literally her daughter was like, we were on a trip to New Mexico when we got this piece together. You know, like it was Ugh. so emotional and heartrending because- I mean, it was over. It was already over when they found the bone fragments. But now, of course, it's really real. It's her jewelry. It's this, these bangles she literally never took off, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, they also located some teeth that they were completely consistent with Penn's dental record. So, again, they could not lift DNA out of these teeth. But they knew which, like, number tooth it is. Like, okay, here's number 30, and it has a crown. And they looked at Penn's dental records, and she had crown work done on that exact tooth. Yep, yep, yep. So, yeah, that's pretty clear that as it's— As close it, as it can get. Yeah, exactly. without DNA. 
Yeah, they also found an additional burn barrel and they discovered more bone fragments and a spent shell casing from a 22 bullet, the same caliber as the rifle taken from the shed. With this new physical evidence, the medical examiner was able to finally issue Edith Penn Meyer a death certificate, the cause of death listed as homicidal violence. Harve also had more information for the police. She told them that they had everything wrong. She's like, look, I know this looks really bad for Ken. And, you know, he's not going to tell you the truth because he's scared for my life. But I, I got to tell you guys what the truth is. So are you ready to hear what Ken told Harv of what really happened on the day that Penn disappeared? Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm already like at my cap for bullshit. All of his bullshit. Yeah. Ken claimed that on the morning of February 23rd, 2005, he had been snowshoeing at the high school when a black SUV pulled up beside him. Inside was a man with white hair who identified himself only as Phil. Phil said that Held he had under- gunpoint and said to get in the car. No, 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 no. Phil was very friendly. Phil said that he understood that Ken was trying to get back together with his girlfriend and that he could make that happen for him. Oh, Phil the matchmaker. Yes, Phil the problem solver over here. Yeah, okay, got it, got it. Phil said that all Ken had to do was get Penn over to his Lempster house at 3 p.m. and that Phil would take care of the rest. So Ken went on to tell Harve that at this point he drove to Penn's house in the morning after he was snowshoeing and she was walking her dog. He said that Penn put Fluff back in the house and then Penn willingly jumped in his car with him. Uh-huh. And the two had a lovely day where they proceeded to drive to Greenfield, Massachusetts for some reason. That's where Ken's family home is, but I don't know why they were going there. And he said that he and Penn had actually really pleasant conversation the whole time. He said he really opened up to her and talked about their different vulnerabilities. And it was a wonderful conversation. He said at 3 p.m. he dropped off Penn at his house, telling her he needed to go over to Jim Swan's house to take care of his dogs. And then Phil pulled in after him. And Ken said that the two greeted each other as though they knew one another. Ken told Harv that he even thought Phil might be a boyfriend of Penn's because they greeted each other so warmly. And then he left to take care of his friend's dogs. Uh huh. When he returned a little while later, Phil was standing alone, burning something in the fire pit. Ken said he shouted at this stranger, where is Penn? Where is she? But Phil only said, your problem is solved and walked back to his SUV. And where's Phil now? Well, Carpenter said that he was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You didn't answer my question. And he was like, I need to know where Penn is. And he said at that point, Phil had reached his SUV and he turned around and showed vanished. Did his SUV fly into the sky and then he vanished into thin air? (laughs) Wait, is that what happened? Because like I've heard of that. I've heard that that happens. And he said, I'm from the future. I'm from the future. And this is my time machine. And I've come from the future to take care of your problem. My name is actually Doc. It's Doc. (laughs) Doc Brown. (laughs) So basically... 
He says at this point that the man menacingly showed him a handgun in a holster and he threatened him and he said, I'm sure I can find a barrel big enough for you too and your wife. And then he disappeared. And then he just drove off. And, and of he course, never got Ken didn't get name. the license plate number or his full name or really like a good description or anything. Just white hair. <laughs> just white hair. Just a guy with white hair who was like around the same height as Ken. That's what <laughs> who magically said. pulled up and said, do you want all your problems to be solved? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yep. Totally. Thanks. Totally. Thanks, Thanks that. Yeah. So this yep. is, but like the sad thing about this though is Harv believes it completely <laughs> And she's, like, completely believes that Ken is innocent. She believed that this, like, Phil guy is for real to the point where she said that a new guy named Phil came to an AA meeting and she was, like, terrified of him. She thought he was the assassin who was, like, checking up on her. So she's like, you need to protect me. You need to protect Ken. This guy, Phil, is going to attack one of us. Like, I'm so scared of this. And the cops are like, oh, honey, like, we do not believe this even for a second like I'm so sorry that you believe this but there's no way that this is going this is there's no way that this is true but the police do have to investigate this as thoroughly as possible because they didn't want Ken's defense attorney at trial to say like they made a rush of judgment they like you know pinholed me ignored evidence and they ignored any other leads or evidence you know in order to like frame me so they had to like do all of this bullshit work. They like had to go interview all of the fills that were at the AA. They had to like try to find recon. Yeah. They had to like find the SUV. They had to like look through security cameras to see if there was any basis for this story. What a waste of taxpayers dollars. 100%. There was absolutely no proof that Phil ever existed. Clearly. And at this point also, I think Harv was a little bit coming around, you know, when she talks to the police and they're kind of like, yeah, we investigated this and there's no evidence that Phil existed. There's no evidence you're in trouble. And there's a lot of evidence that your husband killed Penn Meyer. So I think she's like at this point coming around a little bit and she's like, oh, well, there's more. I found some stuff in his toolbox. So I got to give that to you. And what she found was... Penn's AA medallion, which she would have never been without, obviously. Yeah. And also, she found a car key that was wrapped in duct tape. And when they put it in Penn's car's ignition, it fit completely and turned the, the car on. It was her car okay. key. Yeah. So, obviously, there's a lot of evidence piling up against Ken at this point. But lucky for him, he snagged one of New Hampshire's absolute best defense attorneys, a dynamic and interesting man named Mark Sissy, who also famously defended Pamela Smart. No way. Uh Uh-huh. He's, like, this really interesting man who has, like, very intense defenses and he's like got this like he wears like rumpled suits and like has a funny little like graying curly ponytail no yeah so it's not what you'd expect from like a dynamic defense attorney Uh, but yes on September 19th 2007 Ken's trial began the prosecution's case was that Ken Carpenter hated Penn Meyer because he blamed her for the breakup with his girlfriend and his ruined reputation in the AA community. 
The prosecution sought to prove that Ken was a dangerous murderer who had a history of previous restraining orders and violating the terms of those orders. Yeah. The body found on his property was certainly Penn's. Her teeth, jewelry, car key, and AA medallion had all been found on or around the Lempster house and land. Furthermore, there was proof through the word processor ribbon that Ken had typed the fraudulent legal agreements and his own words and sketch in his journal could be used against him as well. Yeah. So Mark Sisti for the defense gets up there and he's like, this is all a cute make-believe story that the prosecution cannot prove. And that's what they need to do, but they won't be able to because it's not true. And here's a snippet from Sisti's opening statements. Please, please enlighten me. You know, one of the problems in this case is because they don't have a cause of death. They don't know when a death would have occurred. They don't know where a death would have occurred. And they don't know how a death would have occurred. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a murder case. Folks, with regard to the burden of proof, the prosecution cannot even prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the remains found on Carpenter's property, the bones, the teeth, the reconstructed skull, are actually the artifacts of Penn Meyer. Now, Sisti continued, DNA from any of the remains, there's none. DNA from Carpenter's house, there's none. DNA matching Carpenter to Penn Meyer's house, there's none. DNA from Penn Meyer in Carpenter's vehicle, none. Cause of death? Means of death? Is it homicide? Was it accidental? Could it have been death caused by natural causes? Starting to get the picture, he said. Ew. Yeah. And I mean, I understand that that could be a compelling argument, but sir, (laughs) there are human remains mixed with Penn's signature jewelry. You have a notebook in the defendant's handwriting literally doodling the murder. And also... Even if those human remains aren't pens, isn't it a little troubling that he still has human remains in his fire pit? Recent human remains? Yes. And it was still smoldering? And it was still smoldering. This is not like, oh, there was an accidentally a, a skeleton there from 1832, you know? Like, I like that the argument is like, yeah, there's human remains on his, on his, his property. But, but, but what? But so what? So what? We don't know so who they what? are. Doesn't everyone have remains in their fire pit? What? It's like, I get legally what you're doing here, but the man still has body parts in his fire pit and in his stump. I do have to hand it to Sisti, though. Like, he, during the trial, somebody referred to Penn's murder, and he's like, strike that. We're not calling it a murder. We have no evidence that a murder took place. We are only calling it a disappearance. And the judge was like, oh, you know what? You're right. That could be prejudicial. So you're right. We're, we're not calling it a murder during the trial. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So Sandy testified about the odd early morning phone call and, you know, also his other erratic behavior. Penn's daughter testified and positively identified the silver bangles found on Ken's property. The medical examiner did a solid job testifying that the remains were, in fact, Penn's. They even brought in a bone specialist who could identify that they belonged to a woman in her mid-50s and Penn was 55 and it was like to Penn's general height. And they could say they knew that the bones had been recently burned, of course. Yeah. And Mark says he really did his very darndest to poke holes in the testimony. Like basically they had a dental forensic specialist up there being like, and here is where she had a crown in this tooth and this is the tooth we found. And he's like, but it was, we don't know it's hers because you couldn't get DNA from it, you know? So he's trying to like poke holes where he can, but the, the medical examiner was actually like really great on the stand. And she was just like, 
no, it's definitely Pen. I feel very comfortable with my ruling. I mean, it's her jewelry. It's all of the dental records are consistent, you know? Yeah. And so after the prosecution rested, Sissy did attempt to have the case thrown out due to what he perceived as lack of evidence. But the judge was like, nah, we're seeing this one through. There's plenty yeah, of evidence. Yeah, lack of evidence. Yeah. So in his closing statement, Mark Sisti hammered that the prosecution hadn't proven their case. And he essentially tried to do this weird guilt tripping thing to the jury about making the right choice, basically be, by saying that there was so much doubt in the case that if they voted to convict this man, they'd be like looking at themselves in the mirror in 10 years wondering if they did the right thing. Oh, my God. I can't believe that that's allowed. I know. It feels like gaslighting the jury, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he basically like guilted them. And then the prosecutor, Will Delker, absolutely crushed his closing statements. So he apparently like the night before was reading his closing argument to his wife, who was a reporter. And they were both like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> this is a terrible closing statement. Yeah. And his wife, who, you know, being a reporter, she knows the strength of a good narrative. She was like, Will, just tell a story. Tell the story of Penn. Tell the story of her murder. Make a compelling story out of this, you know? Yeah. And so he literally didn't sleep the night before. He wrote an entirely new closing argument. And apparently it was so compelling that later the bailiffs and the other court employees would say that it was the most powerful closing argument they had ever witnessed. Oh, no, that's great. Yeah, so Will Delker basically told the story of how Penn had been forced at gunpoint to read a script to Sandy Merritt through brave tears, how she had begged him to let her go, and how eventually he coldly and callously murdered her and burnt her body as if it was nothing. He concluded, that man right there left a trail of human wreckage, in this case, that didn't end with the murder of Penn Meyer. He manipulated witness after witness, Sandy Merritt, Dale Carpenter. He used his own son to lie to the police and cover up evidence. He drove his wife to the brink of suicide with his lies and manipulation. These actions show you that that man is willing to do anything to get what he wants. It's only a matter of common sense that he would stoop to the level of committing an almost unimaginable, gruesome murder to get what he wanted. Don't let the defendant manipulate you like he tried to manipulate everyone else in this case. Don't believe his lies. The evidence proves beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant murdered Penn Meyer and that he is guilty of first-degree murder, and that is the only just verdict you can render in this case. I love it when you get so intense. <laughs> I feel very strongly about this, and I think Delker did an amazing job delivering this statement, and I felt very strong as I read it. <laughs> well, it seemed that the jury agreed with Will Delker and myself, because after only two hours of deliberation, the jury found Ken Carpenter guilty of first-degree murder. Thank goodness. Yep. And in New Hampshire, at least at this time, a guilty conviction of first-degree murder carries a mandatory sentence of life without the possibility of parole. What do we call that, Andy? L-fucking-wop. L-wop. L-wop. I, I always feel good when people like him get L-wopped. Ugh, it's just, it's such a satisfying feeling. Yeah. Yeah. 
Jonathan Purick has never fully recovered from losing the budding love of his life. He still drives around a car with a vanity license plate that reads Penn's Cobb. Hmm. He has stayed close to the AA community at Millie's Place and even helped Cynthia Harve Harvey obtain a divorce from Ken Carpenter. Good. Yeah, this is actually a good story. It's in the epilogue of the book. And he basically talks about how he went with Harv at her divorce proceedings to talk in her, you know, support of her. And basically when Ken Carpenter saw him was like, throw that man out of here. He's a drunk and a liar. He has no place in these proceedings. And the judge was like, calm down. You sit your butt down. Sit down, sir. And and Jonathan was actually like, Good. I hope I rile you. I hope that like seeing me upsets you, you fuck knob, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thankfully the divorce was granted. Harv now works as a nurse in Vermont and Ken Carpenter remains imprisoned in a New Hampshire state prison. His release date online is listed as 2105. So suffice to say, I think he's going to be dying in prison. 2105. <laughs> yeah, 2105. That was the year he is to be released. <laughs> Holy shit. This case has stuck with nearly everyone who knew Penn and even those that didn't. After the verdict, one of the jurors said that she had fallen in love with the person that Penn Meyer had been. Another juror told a reporter that he had been undecided until the very end when Will Delker's eloquent close brought all of the evidence together cohesively. Staying up all night was worth it. It really, really was. And, you know, it's important when we tell these stories to really focus on who they're about, which is the person who sadly lost their life. And Penn was a huge spirit, a huge soul. She touched so many lives. And I think if there's any takeaway from today, it is that we should all aspire to be a little bit more like Penn Meyer in our own lives. For sure. Oh, guys, Wikipedia fun fact time. Okay, this is kind of a non-Wikipedia fun fact because there was no Wikipedia information for this Ken Carpenter. There are apparently six other more famous Ken Carpenters on Wikipedia, including an American football player, a radio announcer, an Olympian discus thrower, a cyclist, a journalist, and a paleontologist who all have done much better shit in their lives than being a murdering POS. So good on you for Wikipedia for not even entertaining this Ken Carpenter's bullshit. They're like, we've got enough of them. We'll pass. We already have six Ken Carpenters and they're much better than that guy. (laughs) Love. In conclusion, the whole, you know, the actual murderer is this mysterious guy named Phil is kind of like the new version of, I totally have a boyfriend, guys. He lives in Canada. That's why you haven't met him. Collect calls only. <laughs> also, maybe it's not the best idea to steal from your place of employment. I know. But then you- also, also, but also, maybe when you get caught doing something naughty, you don't try to flirt with the officer. Yeah. Either. Maybe I mean, you don't offer her no strings attached sex. Because that's what every woman is craving in a Walmart parking lot while they're doing their job. After a bag of chips. At least he went for the chips first. (laughs) No chips? Okay, how about my dick? Cool ranch. What do you think? Yeah. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Especially you guys, because I love you. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.